In the summer of 2001, I was serving as a counselor in the Stake Young Women's Presidency in the Stillwater, Oklahoma Stake. For various reasons, the Stake Presidency had come to us and asked us to plan for the next year's girls' camp at a state park within our stake boundaries. The park we ended up selecting had fewer affordable recreational opportunities than our previous location. We considered a variety of new activities, each with their pluses and minuses. As a Girl Scout leader in Stillwater, I had learned that the local Girl Scout Council provided a two-day course through the National Archery Development Association that gave the participants the training to be able to teach basic principles of archery and run a safe archery range. Obtaining the certification would give us access to a substantial discount through which we could purchase simple recurve bows and arrows. Through personal contacts at the local university, I had determined that we could borrow ethafoam targets and other basic equipment we would need to create a fun and safe experience for our young women. The girls loved this new activity, and even after I was released from the presidency, I received an annual invitation to attend girls' camp to run the archery program. The so-called fee for attending the archery training was that I had my name added to a list of adults certified as level one archery instructors who are willing to be called upon to run the archery range at various Girl Scout camp locations throughout the council. When it came time to renew my certification, I was asked to consider going through the level two training, which meant that I would be able to teach the two-day level one course that I had previously taken. The level two training was much more in-depth, focusing in greater detail on various equipment options, physical properties of various types of bows and arrows, refinement of shooting technique, and even how to use a bowstring jig, a device which allows you to make a custom bowstring. About the time I finished the level two training and passed the written exam, I had started rereading the Book of Mormon with all of my newly acquired archery knowledge, when I came to the account of Nephi's bow breaking in 1 Nephi chapter 16, I realized for the first time what a truly remarkable story this is. Like much of the Book of Mormon narrative, it is full of understatement. Because none of us here, well, probably none of us, is hunting with a bow as the sole means of providing dietary protein for ourselves or our families, and because none of us is currently living in the extreme environment of the Arabian Peninsula, we take the brief details of the story at their simple face value. But doing so would mean not fully appreciating a number of important teachings found in these verses. While the book of 1 Nephi is probably the most read, or at least the most often read book in the Book of Mormon, I want to recall for you the details of this particular story Nephi had just declared hard things to his brothers, which included the truth that no unclean thing can enter the kingdom of God. This happened while Lehi and his family had been dwelling in the valley of Lemuel, and Nephi's words caused his brothers to humble themselves before the Lord. Following this occurrence, Lehi found the Leahona outside the door of his tent. With direction from the Leahona, the family took their tents and departed into the wilderness, traveling in nearly a south-southeast direction and pitching their tents, first in a place they called Shazer, which has the meaning of a place with trees, 
and then on to other fertile parts of the wilderness. Nephi and his brothers began to hunt with their bows and arrows and stones and slings and were successful in obtaining the wild game the large family needed to survive. Given the various hardships they had endured during their years in the wilderness, this must have seemed like an especially sweet time. There was plenty of food, and however briefly, Laman and Lemuel were not murmuring. The point of this story is not to think that hard times are just around the bend when you are experiencing a time of plenitude and blessings, but it is interesting that we frequently find that pattern in the scriptures and in our lives. In an October 1995 General Conference address, Elder Richard G. Scott taught, quote, just when all seems to be going right, challenges often come in multiple doses applied simultaneously. When those trials are not consequences of your disobedience, they are evidence that the Lord feels you are prepared to grow more. He therefore gives you experiences that stimulate growth, understanding, and compassion, which polish you for your everlasting benefit. To get you from where you are to where he wants you to be requires a lot of stretching, and that generally entails discomfort and pain." End quote. So in continuing our story with Nephi, tragedy, and I don't use this word lightly or facetiously, struck and Nephi's steel bow broke. Whether it was from years of use, for example, a typical modern bow can be shot as many as 100,000 times without losing power when the bow is drawn back, or from corrosion from the high temperature and high humidity in the area, or for some other cause, the result was the same. Nephi had lost the means whereby he could provide for his family. Not only must his heart have been heavy because he and his family were tired and hungry, but Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael began to murmur exceedingly against the conditions they found themselves in, against the Lord, and it seems especially against Nephi. The fact that their own bows had lost their springs, whether from being overshot or from the sheer laziness of not unstringing them at the end of the day and releasing the tension on the bow, and the fact that they had done nothing to replace these crucial tools seems lost on them. As Elder Neil A. Maxwell said, commenting on this story, quote, one can almost hear them saying, let Nephi do it. This trip was his idea, end quote. <laughs> We are told that even Father Lehi, who is now old and weary, started to murmur against the Lord. Truly Nephi, a faithful and devoted servant of the Lord, was in a dire predicament. Or, as Elder Scott has described, the Lord felt Nephi was prepared to grow more. At this point in the story, Nephi did something that was really remarkable. He recorded, quote, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did make out of wood a bow, and out of a straight stick and arrow. Wherefore, I did arm myself with a bow and arrow, with a sling and with stones. And I said unto my father, Whither shall I go to obtain food? End quote. Not only did Nephi not give in to the all-too-human pattern of complaining and feeling sorry for himself, but he also did a, remarkable, uh, did a number of remarkable, even miraculous things. First, he located the only kind of wood in that desert region that would have been suitable for making a bow. Second, with no previous skill as a bow maker, he crafted a bow that was strong and balanced enough that he could shoot moving game with some degree of accuracy. 
Third, he fashioned a bowstring that was compatible with the strength of the wooden bow. And fourth, he made one arrow that was straight enough that it could be shot accurately and sharp enough that it would kill game. As a further aside, somehow Nephi would have had to know that he now needed a longer arrow than for his old steel bow with its tighter draw. As Hugh Nibley observed, quote, though it sounds simple enough when we read about it, it was almost as great a feat for Nephi to make a bow as it was for him to build a ship, end quote. Like Nephi, each one of us is likely to experience the breaking of a bow, a major life challenge that has all the makings of a personal or family disaster, or that has all the makings of an opportunity to grow. In an April 2009 General Conference address, President Henry B. Eyring said, quote, with all the differences in our lives, we have at least one challenge in common. We all must deal with adversity, end quote. So what then does this extraordinary story from the Book of Mormon teach us about dealing with the trials and adversity that are part of this mortal experience? I think there are at least six principles we can learn from this story. Given what we already know about Nephi from the first 15 chapters of 1 Nephi, even though we are not told explicitly that Nephi prayed, it seems inconceivable that in this very challenging situation, Nephi would not have turned to Father in Heaven in prayer. Prior to this occurrence, prayer is mentioned in connection with a number of major events. First, Nephi knew about the vision of the destruction of Jerusalem that Lehi had received, a revelation that came as a result of Lehi's prayer. Second, in response to prayer, Nephi's bands were loosed after his brothers bound him during the journey back into the wilderness with Ishmael and his family. And third, Nephi understood that the vision of the tree of life his father had received could only be understood by inquiring of the Lord, that is, by praying. When prayer is a consistent part of our daily lives and we have learned to listen for and to answers to our prayers, we develop confidence in that process. With the still limited preparation Nephi had at that point, perhaps it would have been too much for him to undertake a project as big as building a boat for his family to sail to the new world in without having additional experiences to strengthen his testimony of the power of prayer. Certainly, it was not just a good guess on Nephi's part that allowed him to make a bow of hunting caliber, but rather divine inspiration that came out of a very regular pattern of calling upon Heavenly Father in prayer. My guess is that in praying, Nephi did not ask that a new bow, fully formed and ready to solve his problem, be dropped into his lap. If that had been his strategy, it would have been much easier to have just asked to have fresh game delivered to the door of his family's tent. We know from Nephi's account in chapter 11 that he was allowed to see the same vision of the tree of life given to Lehi after, quote, pondering in his heart Lehi's words. One way of looking at pondering is as the intensive preparation required for meaningful prayer. It seems likely that following some pondering, Nephi's words weren't the sometimes rote words we use, bless me too, as in bless me to make a bow, but instead the more thoughtful question, what can I do too, as in what can I do to make a bow that will allow me to hunt the game my family needs to survive?
Once Nephi had communed with Father in heaven in a humble, pleading prayer and spent time listening to his answer, Nephi had to get up off his knees and act. His family was hungry and temporarily at rest in an area with few alternative food choices to the game he caught. There was not the time for the self-indulgent luxury of self-pity or inaction. He found nab wood, the only wood in the area of the Arabian Peninsula thought suitable for making a bow and fashioned a bow out of it. Through inspiration, or through actually trying to use the arrows from his steel bow, he realized that he needed a longer wooden arrow. Then somehow he was inspired to make a straight wooden arrow with a head of sufficient lethalness that he could return to feeding his family. His willingness to go and do, as he had previously demonstrated in obtaining the brass plates from Laban, was again manifest in the effort he must have put forth to craft a new bow. In my own family, I have an example of someone who repeatedly went and did, even when wallowing in self-pity might have seen the more natural course. I am so grateful for her example. My great-grandmother, Flora Mae Walker, was born in Hillsborough, Texas, on August 14, 1899. Although I spent a fair amount of time around her while I was growing up, and she died shortly after my 27th birthday, I knew surprisingly little about her life while she was living. As a child, she was the grandmother who was never too busy to read to me, who invited me to spend the weekend with her at her third-floor walk-up apartment in Baltimore, and who had me work jigsaw puzzles with her. In her later years, I would visit her in the nursing home occasionally when I returned to Maryland, but by this point, she had severe dementia, and the visits were for me, not her. There was nothing in my youthful interactions with her that would have led me to believe that she had had a life filled with adversity. She was the third child of Leonard Newman Walker and Mary V. Reinhardt. She was born, when she was born, her father was in jail, having been charged with committing arson. Although I had always been told that her mother had died in childbirth, her cousin and I are now pretty certain from research that we've done that her mother abandoned her, leaving her in the care of the doctor who delivered her and the doctor's wife. Flora May was fortunate in that her father's sisters later took her into their homes, but she moved around with a great deal of frequency, sometimes living with her exonerated father and sometimes not. When she was 17, she met and married Dr. Playford Rush, a young widowed physician who had come to Texas on assignment with the U.S. Public Health Service. Although doctors did not enjoy the level of income then that they have today, I'm sure she thought this marriage was securing her future. About a year later, Playford was sent to Camp Merritt, New Jersey, where he was assigned to run a hospital for soldiers with Spanish influenza and other ailments and to provide for their needs before they were shipped off to Europe to fight in the Great War, World War I. Flora May was pregnant with twin daughters when she and Playford contracted the Spanish flu in October 1918. While an estimated 20 to 50 million people died worldwide in this pandemic, Playford was one of only three public health service physicians who succumbed. Flora May survived, but she was a 19-year-old widow living 1,200 miles from her family and ready to give birth to twin daughters. From public health service documents at the National Archives, I learned that she had to file a petition to receive any type of survivor benefits and was asked to prove that her deceased husband had contracted the Spanish flu as a result of caring for sickened soldiers. Only a few days before she gave birth to the twins, the panel that reviewed her petition granted her Playford's death benefit. 
For the next few years, she lived with family in the Houston area and with Playford's family in Western Maryland. Then more tragedy befell her. Flossie, one of the twins, died from diphtheria when she was 18 months old. The other twin, my grandmother Marjorie Rush, survived. Flora May remarried in 1923 and had two more children. On Christmas Eve 1935, when the two younger children had the measles, her second husband went out to get medicine and never returned. Surely her bow had broken, at least for the third time. And yet she went and did, perhaps because she was left with few other choices. At various points, due to economic necessity, my grandmother, Marjorie, lived away from Flora May with other family members. Later, during World War II, Flora May secured a night job working at the Bendix Radio Factory in Towson, Maryland, where they made military aviation equipment, almost unbelievably to save the streetcar fare of a dime each way from her Baltimore apartment, she walked the 16-mile round trip. I didn't mention that she was born with a type of congenital hip dysplasia so that she walked with a limp her entire life, making this five-day-a-week trip on foot in the humid heat of summer and the damp cold of winter on the mid-Atlantic seaboard a special challenge. Just as Nephi learned, for Flora May, the only way to get a new bow was to do the hard work of making one. Dennis L. Largy, in a 1991 Sperry Symposium address, observed, quote, Instead of murmuring, Nephi simply went to work and made another bow. Murmuring wastes time, lengthens one's journey, and hardens one's heart. God may not always stop bows from breaking, but he does help in the construction of new ones, end quote. If I had been Nephi and had been able to successfully fashion a new bow and arrow, I think my thought would have been, if I was smart enough to do this, I can certainly figure out where the game is that I should hunt. And yet Nephi, ever humble, did not do that. He returned to his father, his priesthood leader, and sought his guidance in the matter. Note the interesting pattern that first he prayed, second he acted on the revelation that he received, And third, he turned to his priesthood leader for further counsel. One of the great challenges that each of us face in this life is developing spiritual self-reliance. I have found, and Nephi's story suggests, that we are most prepared to receive counsel from priesthood leaders when we have first communed with Heavenly Father and acted on the inspiration we've obtained. After Nephi made a new bow and a single arrow, he returned to his father's tent and asked him to inquire the Lord where he should go to hunt. In answer to this prayer, the Lord told Lehi to look upon the ball and behold the things which are written. In our day, that ball, the Leahona, has been likened to the scriptures. Although our natures may be to lean to our own understanding and want to be dismissive of divine writ when we are facing great challenges, it is frequently then that scripture does hold the answer to dealing with adversity. On July 7, 2011, four years ago today, I was diagnosed with stage 2 invasive ductile carcinoma, a common form of breast cancer. Even though my mother's mother had died from the same type of cancer and my mother had had the same diagnosis as mine two years previously, I was in shock. I thought this might be something that I would deal with in my late 60s, as they had, but I wasn't even 50. 
In the space of one phone call, I went from someone that I would have considered to be very healthy to someone that was facing a major health challenge. My bow had broken. One of the key impressions that I had during the time immediately following this diagnosis and trying to determine what my options were was to redouble my scripture study. My initial reaction to the strong prompting was, I am not going to find the cure for cancer or the name of the surgeon I should go to by reading the scriptures. Yet as I acted on this feeling and, and read, I received very clear impressions about what I should do and who would be the best to help me in my particular situation. I was so focused on the needs of my body, but I learned that the needs of my spirit were every bit as great, if not greater. After extensive surgery, that it was determined that due to my family history, an, ag an, ag an aggressive treatment plan was needed, and the best course of action would be a number of rounds of chemotherapy, followed by more surgery. About 10 days after my first treatment, my hair started to fall out by the handful, my bones ached with a flu-like intensity, and I started to experience the neuropathy, the numbness in my fingers and toes, that would last far beyond the chemotherapy treatments. Although I had tried to prepare mentally, although I had tried to prepare mentally myself against it, a certain amount of self-pity set in. About this time, it was fall 2011 general conference. As I tuned in to the first session, I remember praying that there would be something said that would help me in my current situation. In that Saturday morning session, the very first talk was given by Elder Richard G. Scott on the power of scripture. In this wonderful address that seemed to be given just for my personal benefit, he stated the following, quote, scriptures can calm an agitated soul, giving peace, hope, and a restoration of confidence and one's ability to overcome the challenges of life. They have potent power to heal emotional challenges when there is faith in the Savior. They can accelerate physical healing. Scriptures can communicate different meanings at different times in our life according to our needs. A scripture that we may have read many times can take on nuances of meaning that are refreshing and insightful when we face a new challenge in life." End quote. Again, my attention was turned to the scriptures, but this time as a source of accelerated physical healing, as a way of making a new bow. Thinking about what we know from Nephi, it is difficult to imagine him whining or complaining as he petitioned Heavenly Father for his help. It is harder still to imagine that he would not have offered a prayer of thanksgiving when he was again able to feed his family. Elder Neil A. Maxwell eloquently stated, quote, Broken bows litter the landscapes of our lives, representing yesterday's frustrations. These were real enough at the moment. Dotting the same landscape, however, are many more reminders of blessings than of discarded broken bows. May we have the eyes to see that which an outside auditor would surely see as he counts our blessings, end quote. We, too, can choose to be grateful regardless of our circumstances, even when our bows have broken. We can receive the calm assurance that our Father in Heaven loves us and is giving us an opportunity to grow. In an April 2014 General Conference address, President Dieter F. Uchtdorf counseled, quote, We can choose to be grateful no matter what. This type of gratitude transcends what is ever happening around us. It surpasses disappointment, discouragement, and despair. 
It blooms just as beautifully in the icy landscape of winter as it does in the pleasant warmth of summer. Being grateful in times of distress does not mean that we are pleased with our circumstances. It does mean that through the eyes of faith, we look beyond our present-day challenges. This is not a gratitude of the lips, but of the soul. It is a gratitude that heals the heart and expands the mind. True gratitude is an expression of hope and testimony. It comes from acknowledging that we do not always understand the trials of life, but in trusting that one day we will." End quote. Thinking back to my own health challenge, it would be difficult to honestly feel gratitude for it. Yet I remember feeling a tremendous amount of gratitude in knowing that Heavenly Father was personally mindful of my situation as shown by a nearly continuous stream of tender mercies that happened throughout that ordeal, of supportive phone calls from out-of-town friends that I hadn't heard from in years, of meals that just showed up at my house, and of thoughtful acts of service rendered by family, ward members, neighbors, and co-workers. When Nephi's bow broke, his life and the life of his family hung in the balance. What he needed was a miracle in order to find a solution. On LDS.org, a miracle is defined as, quote, an extraordinary event caused by the power of God, end quote. It is interesting that Nephi, Laman, and Lemuel had seen many of the same extraordinary events caused by the power of God, but only Nephi recognized them for the miracles they were. From June 2013 through December 2014, I had the privilege of receiving weekly missionary emails written by Emily Lewis, a BYU student who served in the Australia-Adelaide mission. Sister Lewis frequently concluded her emails with the advice to, quote, remember to look for the miracles every day, end quote. Initially, I was a little put off by this. However, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that in looking for miracles, we demonstrate to Heavenly Father that we are open to and have faith in his power to cause extraordinary events in our own lives and the lives of others. Nephi had the kind of faith required for a miracle, to build a working bow from the very limited materials at hand, and to successfully hunt the game his family needed for their very survival. We can trust in Heavenly Father that the growth we experience at the point our bows break will bring the the miracle of blessings previously unimagined. Sometimes the evidence of such miracles may take time to recognize, And thinking back to my great-grandmother, Flora Mae Walker, I am sure that she had days and nights of despair, but I consider her posterity, daughters who had had happy and long marriages of over 60 years, grandchildren and great-grandchildren who have made loving homes and had professional success, and even a few great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren who are pursuing excellent educational opportunities such as those found at Brigham Young University. And I think surely this is a miracle sprung out of adversity. I think back to the health news I received four years ago today, and never could I have imagined in that moment, or even the year that followed, that I would be standing here today having this opportunity to be the campus devotional speaker or serving as a university librarian at BYU. How could I fail to see that as a miracle? President Thomas S. Monson wisely observed, quote, our most significant opportunities will be found in the times of greatest difficulty, end quote. 
As we pray, act upon the revelation we receive, counsel with our priesthood leaders, faithfully study the scriptures, feel gratitude in our circumstances, and expect miracles. We, like Nephi of old, will be able to make a new bow when inevitably ours breaks. In the language of the Doctrine and Covenants, we will be able to, quote, come off conqueror, end quote. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.